Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Thanks for joining Father Steve Macias and me for another edition of the Out of the Question podcast. I want to start off by thanking those listeners who contacted us over the past couple of weeks about our discussions, specifically on jury duty and the subject of devotionals. You know, in the world of podcasting, it's gratifying to know that there are people who are listening and benefiting from our informal conversations. So as I usually say at the end of our podcast broadcast, if you have something you would like to share with us, reactions, questions, or just to say hello, you can reach us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com and share your thoughts. So Steve, we heard from some folks in Alaska this week. What's your reaction to some of their comments? Well, it's nice to know that in God's country out there in Alaska that People are still obeying their godly duty, making it through the snow to get to jury duty. But it's discouraging to know that whether we're in California or somewhere that even has Republican governors like Alaska, that God's word still needs to be preached and faithfully applied uh, everywhere. So let's get to the subject of today. Well, today we have an interesting topic. We're going to talk about an upcoming holiday and the figure attached to that. And for that, we have a question. Was Christopher Columbus a hero or a villain? What do you think, Andrea? Well, I have to give you some backstory on this. I grew up in New York, and I come from an Italian family. And Columbus Day was a day off. So in three ways, Columbus was somebody who was looked at in my childhood and with my family as a hero. He was Italian. My family was Italian. New York had a Columbus Day parade. I'm not really sure if they still do or not, but they did then. And it was a day off from school. So as a child, who wasn't going to love Columbus? And you got the standard history of Columbus, 1492, Sail the Ocean Blue, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. So my generation of people wouldn't have a negative view of Christopher Columbus. How about you when you were going to school? How was Chris viewed? Chris has been maligned my entire school life, which now, albeit wasn't too long ago, but I was in middle school, a part of a group called the Mecha, which was a indigenous peoples of North America group, largely associated with uh, La Raza and these type of groups. And so we very early heard about how Christopher Columbus, not only was he not the first explorer to discover North America, but that was not really valuable because the people who were here before, the the native people of North America, were more superior morally, ethically, uh, technologically, and that Christopher Columbus was actually a detriment to our continent. And so I grew up with this idea that Western culture had invaded and genocided the, the noble natives and that our goal in Uh, as young Mexican-American students, was to bring back the independent Native people. Now, what's interesting about that, and, and I mean, we have a difference in age. I'm more of your parents' generation or even older than that. But you see how quickly 
attitudes can change. And this is where worldview comes in. My worldview came from a private Catholic education in the 50s and 60s. Yours came from a public school education in what were your decades? Well, I was born in 1990, so the, the 90s and the 2000s are kind of my education decades. <laughs> okay, so in that amount of time, things change dramatically. So let's first tackle the worldview point of view. Why do you think America changed so much in terms of who we would view as a hero and who we would view as a villain? Well, I think part of it is we've changed because we've allowed a worldview that values ethnicity or ethnic identity more than ethics. So ethnic identity has become in the last 30 to 40 years more important than ethical identity. It doesn't so much matter what you do or how you do it. It matters where you're from, this kind of genetic identity. And so there's been an, a battle raging about this, and the conversation has changed from whether this is a significant event in history, which we would say that it is, to which group, which individual uh, block of people benefits or is hurt by the, the holiday. So in one hand, you have the discussion evolve or devolve into, well, this is an Italian-American holiday. Christopher Columbus is a national symbol of Italian heritage in North America, and so it hurts, it victimizes Italian-Americans if we don't honor his day. But then the other side, this modern ethnic identity culture says, well, it's about the impact that Christopher Columbus had on Native people. So we need to respect the victims that were indigenous people. So it really isn't a matter of the content has changed. Most historians agree on the various events and facts of history. The problem is, as you said, our worldview has now said that history is not a matter of what happened, but a matter of who is the victim and who is to blame. It's more of uh, finding our identity in some type of group of people rather than our identity in ourselves and what we've done. And I think the idea of motives has a lot to do with it. If you look at those who say the motives for discovery, the motives for Christopher Columbus embarking on his journey had religious overtones and undertones, that he was post-millennial in his view, and he was looking to spread the gospel. However, if you look at him from a different point of view, he was some sort of capitalist who was going to be exploiting other people and his impact on the Western Hemisphere or the North America and South America was detrimental, which I think is funny considering many of the critics are beneficiaries of the introduction of Western culture into the Americas. Right. And so you're, you're getting to this idea of, of colonialism, which has not really gone away. Uh, we think of, of Western colonialism as bad. You know, this idea that the Spanish or the English or the Dutch were traveling from Europe to spread both their worldview, their religion, their commerce, to increase their wealth, to find gold. This idea of colonialism is maligned because somehow we're taking a culture of one people and forcing it on the culture of another people. Uh, but really the idea of colonialism that's maligned now by our culture still exists. Uh, if you look at today, uh, some of the most famous colonialists, we call them uh, something different today. 
We call them philanthropists. We have people like Bill and Melinda Gates who travel to uh, Africa and they force their idea of health, their idea of technology, their idea of human value onto the indigenous people. And they force them into their hospitals, into their schools, into their secular worldview. But nobody calls it colonialism because they, in their worldview, they recognize or they believe that this is for the betterment of the people. That if it wasn't for the millions of dollars that Bill and Melinda Gates and their foundation put into starving parts of Africa or parts of Africa that are struggling with disease, then these people would be worse off. So colonialism as an idea hasn't gone away. The real root issue with Christopher Columbus and the real root issue with the hatred of Western colonialism is a hatred for the culture and the Christian God that Western culture represents. That's the real issue with colonialism. So the point you made about modern day colonialism a lot of people would say, well, isn't it good that the Gates family goes ahead and shares their wealth? But along with that comes a religious point of view. So correct me if I'm wrong, but my information says that there's a promotion of things like abortion. There's a promotion of things that actually go ahead with the unity of a family. So they're not coming in and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, their gospel is a very different gospel. Right. And it's one that historically isn't actually for the betterment of the people. Uh, there's a myth, and there's lots of myths associated with Columbus, but there's a, a myth today that says larger populations are bad for poor people, which is just historically inaccurate. So the colonialism of Bill and Melinda Gates teaches contraception, it teaches birth control, it gives out hormonal pills, it teaches abortion, like you mentioned, um, and it attempts to limit the population of aboriginal or indigenous people. Now, from a Christian Western point of view, we would have always encouraged the opposite. Be fruitful and multiply, find God's blessing, build a culture around the abundance of people, because when there is abundance of people, there's an abundance of labor, and since there is no scarcity of materials then we should expect prosperity to go wherever there's a prosperous number of people. Uh, that's very much a worldview issue. It's not a matter of brute facts to be argued. But this isn't something that should surprise us because all around our theology of history are worldview implications. For example, as soon as I said Christopher Columbus, uh, if I was talking to a person educated in a government school, they would probably say something like, Columbus thought the world was flat, and so he sailed west to prove that the world was round or had defined India. And these were the ideas that the people of the medieval period, they were backwards, dark age people who believed in a flat earth, and so they were going to travel west, and um, they were surprised to find aboriginal people or that the world was round. When in fact, Columbus and the, the navigators, the mariners of the medieval period, and for literally a, a millennia before then, understood the word was round because the scripture says the world was round. Uh, the Venerable Bede uh, is quoted way, way back in English history of saying that the world was a orb or a globe. And so there are a lot of myths that we perpetrate that are based not on fact of history, but on our worldview. So I think it's important here to identify this idea of brute factuality. Many of our listeners will be aware of it or familiar with it, but maybe some are not. 
you made the statement earlier that historians all agree on the events and the facts. Well, it depends on how you interpret those facts. So you just gave a description of what many would say Christopher Columbus was motivated by. But I have a quote here from his book of prophecies. Now, this was written by Columbus himself, and this is what he says. It was the Lord who put into my mind, I could feel his hand upon me, the fact that it would be possible to sail from here to the Indies. There was no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit because he comforted me with rays of marvelous illumination from the Holy Scriptures, encouraging me continually to press forward and without ceasing. For a moment, they now encourage me to make haste. So regardless of what other points of view would say, Columbus was saying he was governed by guidance from the Holy Spirit, and that later on he talks in terms of quoting the book of Isaiah. I'm sure you never got that in your education about Christopher Columbus. No, and in fact, my very first English class I took at a community college included the writing of Christopher Columbus and his critics um, as mandatory for every undergrad, and nothing is mentioned of his faith. So this actually brings me back to a subject that it seems I always come back to. Who educates you matters. What you read matters. And the point of view you have matters. And so when people blithely go along and say, it doesn't really matter where my children go to school, or now that they finish high school, they should go to college, and everybody should go to college, and now, in, in many places, they're offering free college. It really does matter where you go and who you listen to, much the same way when parents of younger children want to control what they watch on television or their context through social media. What you input is going to have an effect on you. So from your experience, all right, you hear about Christopher Columbus one way. Describe a little bit what it was like to have to reorient yourself to someone who you thought maybe wasn't a good guy to someone now that you have a different opinion of. Sure. Well, and there are things about him that if he was living today would, would probably not be acceptable, right? But there's a, a reality we have to engage with and understand that in 1492, when uh, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, uh, those kind of simplistic understandings of history are difficult to unlearn. And that's, I think, what you're trying to get to is that there is something about unlearning that is important. And there's a quote that goes along with this, and it's often uh, attributed to Mark Twain. And it goes, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And so as a, a young college student, I was certain that Columbus was a genocidal maniac and that he came with the brutal, tyrannical cross of Christ to, uh, to genocide the native people. And it wasn't until a, a Christian pastor said, why in the world would somebody who you believe is attempting to subjugate the native people into slaves also genocide them? Right. It didn't make any sense, uh, but it fit the narrative that Columbus was evil. It fit the narrative that Christianity was evil. So things that fit our own biases are easier to believe. 
But Christianity is always living in contradiction uh, with this world. You know, St. John warns us to not fall in love with the things of this world because everything that God teaches is going to be hated by this world. So the process of unlearning the things that I knew were sure. You know, I had read the journals of the men who had sailed with Columbus. I had read the journals of the natives who had confessed to Catholic priests the evils that Columbus had done. But then, as you take a step back and you remove the the biased glasses that said Christianity was evil, you started to realize that, you know, this narrative is conveniently pieced together to only include the things that make him look bad and that we just gloss over the things that he has done to encourage or to build up the natives or the happenstances of history that weren't necessarily his fault. So this brings us to another question. So you read history. Who do you believe? Some would take the quote that I gave from Columbus's journal and say, well, of course he put himself in a good light. And somebody else might say, no, that's exactly how he felt. Well, we have to remember that it isn't so much his view, the other guy's view, my view, or your view. We always have to be operating on what is God's agenda. And history, as it's often referred to, is his, capital H-I-S, story, meaning that all events need to be filtered through God's word. And that's why it's so valuable and so much an act of grace that God gave us his word because we have this standard to repair to. So rather than judging a man who sailed and gained his notoriety in 1492, and incidentally, he didn't exactly die a rich man or a hero. So it's very easy for us to make these two-dimensional characters. But rather than view him from the lens of 2019, it's much better to view him from the lens of scripture and evaluate his actions and his attitudes in terms of being a man of his time. There are many people who are very critical about the period in American history where people owned slaves. And they look back and they say, how could people have ever tolerated that? Well, I always say, let's fast forward America 500 years and say, how could the people who lived in the 20th and 21st century ever tolerate abortion? Well, you have to understand the context of the times, but you can't understand it apart from how God tells us to view it. That's right. And speaking on this idea of historical tragedy, what people today in outrage culture or the, the orange man bad culture, whatever you want to say, how we describe the victim culture of today, people are looking for an objective standard. Unfortunately, their standard has changed over the last few centuries. You bring up the idea of slavery. Well, slavery was first outlawed in Christian countries about the year 1000 AD. Now, there's been regression and, and all that to get America slavery, American slavery to where it is. But it was always contrary to the word of God to steal men from their homes and to subjugate them and their progeny. That was always contrary to the word of God. There was an objective standard. And the abolition movement, as strange as it was, appealed to that objective standard. Now, when you look at men and figures like Columbus or even the American founders, you have to apply a standard that is greater than our cultural moment. You have to look something beyond the outrage of our day. And I think that what the world today misses 
is they're not willing to be objective with the period of history uh, that is you know, the 15th century. They're not willing to look at the natives as less culturally or, or, or inferior to the Western society. There's this idea that multiculturalism has no timeline, that somehow the natives who lived in these uh, Caribbean islands were morally or socially or culturally equal to the Western invaders. And this idea, I think Rush Dooney calls it the noble savage idea, is completely misplaced. We have to recognize that there is a goal in human history. And the only way for humans to advance morally, socially, ethically, is to submit to God's objective standards. And in order to understand the times, our times or any other times, what's really needed is scholarship. And it's what's glaringly missing today, because in a world of social media and sound bites, when somebody spouts off a perspective and you ask them, well, where did you get that perspective or where does that come from? You, sometimes you get ludicrous answers like, I saw it on the internet, which would be tantamount to, I saw it on the street or I, I, you know, something dropped from the sky and no context of it to the fact that many people don't want to research and study. So instead of, reading a multitude of sources on Christopher Columbus and then coming up with their own opinion based on what they've read, their own world and life view, what the Bible says, what cultural biases they might have or that the author of these works might have. They take the easy way out and oftentimes put their finger up and say, what's the trend? Do we like Columbus this decade or don't we like Columbus? Right. And this is a trend uh, that you have to look back the last hundred years of scholarship, as you mentioned, uh, to see that there's a history of people bringing their own biases into their telling of history. Uh, many of our, our listeners are familiar with H.G. Wells, right? And so H.G. Wells, in about the year 1920, around there, uh, wrote a book, and it was called The Outline of History. And H.G. Wells, in a H.G. Wells' sense of things, decided to write a history of Western culture without the influence of the church. He wanted to write his own independent retelling of Western history, and he described it from a perspective of material determinism. And his overriding philosophy was that human progress was blind, right? That there was no God guiding the hand. There was no providence of, of God and his people moving things forward, but rather we were all by chance. So some nations were more advanced and some were, were not. Some nations were more socially well off, some were not. But he wrote this book and it was published and the world ate it up. The world loved it. But it was disillusioned because the men of the 1920s did not believe it was a fair or accurate assessment of history. Nevertheless, it was still published and believed by many, many people because H.G. Wells wrote it. But the men who went on to criticize it, men like uh, Hilary Bellick or C.S. Lewis or J.R. Tolkien or G.K. Chesterton, went through and dismantled how Western history cannot be told. The progress of human history cannot be told. The advancement of the university, the hospital, any area of human flourishing cannot be told without the benchmarks of the church moving forward in history. 
Lewis most aptly put it, that the advance of human history coincides with the advance of Christian history. And any time human history sees a decline, it's because the people of that period moved away from the church and the God who was moving history forward. The issue we have today with men who discredit Columbus is they're attempting to do the same thing H.G. Wells did. They're attempting to tell history without using the facts, without using the boundary markers of God's created history. And just in case people think this is just relegated to what we would call history, think back on what the news reports or the history of Jesus's day would have been. So put the feeding of the 5,000, put the resurrection, think of the healing of the man born blind or the, the person who was lame and then could walk. What would be the fake news spin on those things if your primary goal was to discredit who Jesus Christ was and we'd say is? And what would be the account of someone who believed because the Holy Spirit gave them eyes to see and ears to hear. So it's very important that we look at the source, but that doesn't mean you only read or take part in understanding what people who might agree with you would say. Dr. Rushduni was um, amazing in the volumes of books he would read. And he would say things like, whereas most of the stuff in this book is not accurate or, or reliable. There is a part here where the author says this. So he had to have read the entire book. He had to have been able to compare it to other things as well, which made him, I think, a quintessential scholar, probably unlike most of us will ever be, certainly more than I will ever be. But what it says is that there's diligence there, and he becomes a trusted source because you know he's examining more than just one outlet. He's looking at many outlets. That's right. Not only is he examining multiple, he's holding them to the same standard, right? It's very easy for us to look at different historical sources and apply different standards to them. But if you have an objective word of God that you're applying everything to, you can be critical of Columbus, but also recognize the good that his achievements have done for Western culture. Now, I want to go back to the idea uh, of, of noble savages. And, and Dr. Rush Juni talked about the idea from his personal experience. He has an entire volume written on the natives based on his ministry uh, to the Native Americans. But he also talked about a story that we'll all be familiar with. That's the story of Tarzan. Right? Dr. Rush Juni describes Tarzan as the noble savage because Tarzan was a, a natural man formed without the influences of the church or Western culture without the influence of civilization. So Tarzan, who was reared by apes, right? This is by animals, is inherently good. Right? There's a beauty and a goodness to Tarzan because he's unaffected by the world and the, the things that exist in Western culture. Now, I think a lot of us apply that type of thinking to our understanding of the American Aboriginals or Australian Aboriginals or uh, any quote-unquote, pagan culture, we tend to think of them as more pure or more simple or natural. We get our idea for diets from them. We wonder why they live long or live short. We wonder if they are more happy because they're not distracted by technology or the conventions of Western culture. But it all goes back to this idea that 
that we believe that somehow goodness or nobleness or virtue can be found outside of God's standards. And for men who think like Tarzan, the goodness was found in naturalism. It's inherently an evolutionary idea that the world of chance might give you virtue. And I think that what we'll see in the next uh, generation is how this idea of noble savage is not just going to be for Native Americans. See, it's the agenda behind it is not that we believe Native Americans or Aboriginals are inherently better. What we, the underlying assumption is that God's standard isn't real. And so the noble savage is not just uh, Native Americans. The noble savage couldn't be anything that says that the standard is not God's law. So, for example, the noble savage of our day is the homosexual, right? It says that I can find nobility or goodness. The word that our culture likes to use is love. We can find love in a place that is natural. You've seen the, the campaigns about homosexual marriage that say love is love. This is the same Tarzan narrative. It says, I can find natural goodness, virtue, beauty, love, hope outside of God's standards in my own natural humanistic relationships, even though God says those sodomy relationships are evil. Uh, So that's really the agenda behind the noble savage is replacing God's standards with one that originates from nature or from man. And in order to combat that i was on the calcedon website and i just put in christopher columbus to see what things had been written and shared over the years and there's this one educator who makes this recommendation to individuals and parents he says this set aside your own agenda the bottom line god created us to advance his agenda not ours His first command to Adam was to subdue and have dominion over the earth on God's behalf. Like Christopher Columbus, Adam was to plant the flag of his benefactor on every piece of new soil he encountered. Too often we talk about a Christian perspective as if there was some other valid viewpoint to be considered. But God's agenda is infallible. There can be no legitimate competition. As teachers and parents, we must ever be reminding ourselves that it's not about us, not about what we want for our children, or even what our children desire. It's about God's agenda. Yes, and uh, that's the agenda we need to submit ourselves to. Uh, We've used the phrase Western culture or Western identity, and for the last 2,000 years, it was uh, the Western part of the empire that has been preserving Christian culture. But if you look back the last 100 years, it has certainly left Western culture. Uh, the European Union and the United States are not places where their culture is equal with Western identity. Uh, in fact, the Spirit of God is largely moving in countries where Western culture is absent, places like China or South America. Uh, so what needs to be understood is the agenda of God has always been scriptural. And if we're going to criticize Columbus, we need to criticize him with the standards put before him in Scripture. And if we're going to criticize our modern culture, we need to say, where is our culture not in line with Scripture? And so in closing, because we're getting to the end of our time, it would do us well to look at, in America, 
our national holidays, our national figures, those people who we're given a day to set aside and think about and use the standard you just said. Evaluate these people on scriptural standards. Evaluate these people in terms of the law of God, how they kept the commandments of God, if what they taught were in line with the commandments of God, and if their actions matched what they said, because it's easy to profess one thing, but to confess something very different with actions. So I think the answer to the question, Christopher Columbus, hero or villain, is what? How would you say? Which one is he, Steve? Well, I would say he is a hero and that his legacy has been one of discovery. And so I would say he's a hero because of what he discovered. And now the listener might hear uh, for discovering some Caribbean island, but that's really not what makes him a hero or what he discovered. He's a hero in that he pushed discovery to a new part of the world. He brought with him missionaries. He brought with him the gospel. He brought with him technology and education. And so he's a hero in that he discovered a new means to spread God's culture to a new part of the world. And that's really what we're called to do as well. We are heroes in that we move, although imperfectly, move the scepter, the rule, the reign, the kingdom of God forward through our vocations. Christopher Columbus himself was not an ordained priest. He was not a missionary. He didn't go to seminary. He wasn't a Billy Graham evangelist. He didn't hold tent revivals. Although what he did through being faithful and taking God's call, as he recorded in his, in his journals, to the next area, certainly elevated and lifted the life of the indigenous people. There is not one person today living in the Caribbean islands who is not positively affected by his leap of faith. He risked his life, the life of his crew, his personal wealth, and his affluence to take this journey, this journey of discovery. He's a hero because that is exactly what God asks us to do. And the hope and the confidence that he gives us to do, that when we follow our calling, whether we are sea captains or mothers, whether we are explorers or school teachers, that our calling is to discover new places that the gospel has not yet taken hold and has not yet taken root. We are to be Christopher Columbus and that we go into our homes, our schools, our churches, our places of work, and we say, this is the flag of Christ's kingdom all of this shall bow its knee. All of it shall confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And the fruit, as the last 500 years have shown, is that the natives who live in the United States today have benefited from the technological, educational, medical progress of Christendom in Western civilization. Very well said. Well, listeners, I recommend you check out Dr. Rushduni's lectures on American history, his book on the American Indian, and then further explore your own understanding of history, possibly for the first time with the lens of scripture. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.